Hey, Ding Dongs, I'm Jamie, and there is no Richard today. What? What's going on? This is a very special uh, episode of Explain It to Jamie. I'm, I'm currently in London, UK, working with uh, my, my stunning London, UK improv family on, uh, on the tw- uh, 2019 50 Hour Improvathon. Um, I mean, I could go on for hours about about why I'm here doing that. You literally did it for hours. I did, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just finished explaining it to people for hours. I'm, I'm not going to explain it to you now. It, uh, uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm in London, guys, and Richard is not here. So that's why this is a, a bit of a departure episode for us. But I am blessed uh, to be here with my dear, dear friend, Dylan Emery, who is uh, not only a, a stunning improviser himself, he's in the, in the hit um, West End uh, improvised musical showstopper, the improvised musical, but he's also a high-standing financial journalist. Hey, Dylan, how's Hello. it going? It's going very well, Jamie. Lovely to see you. So pleased you can make it over here to London every oh. now and then. Oh, my God, man. It's it's what I live for. I basically, you know, I do Colgate commercials and, and serve people food so that once every two years I can come over to London <laughs> and, and improvise with Much appreciated. With you guys. Yeah, uh, so yeah. it's, everyone gets very excited when you're going to come over. Yeah. So it's really lovely when the, the whole family gets together and goes, Jamie's coming. There you go. You you all heard that correct, that they, they love me and I don't just love them. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so we, I, I thought, you know, we're, we're in London. I have access to, you know, such a, a great mind and someone who's also – so um, specifically um, knowledgeable about uh, the finance market, something that me and Richard, I think, sometimes uh, will skim over or maybe, you know, make um, uh, approximations about because neither of us are are financially educated. And um, and so, yeah, 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 I'm thrilled to have you here in in this beautiful theater. Yeah, we're actually in the theater where Showstopper is happening, which is kind of fun to talk about um, the other side of my life, which is, you know... Investments and financial journalism in in the theatre in which I'm doing my secret dark uh, <laughs> underbelly of my career, which is uh, which is improv. Yeah, yeah. And now the topic um, that that we've decided on today is is behavioural finance. That's it. Behavioural right. finance is just something I particularly find interesting, um, and it's worth everyone knowing about it. I think because it's kind of it's fun, um, but also it's really important in terms of understanding the market. So I thought that would be a good one to kind of introduce you to. Well, and this is perfect because only in the last like two years I've gotten really into investing in the stock market. So I I am I'm really hoping that by the end of this you're going to say good job, good idea. This is the best way to invest your money, and you will probably be fine forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm bound to give you that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, unfortunately, almost the point of behavioral finance is that the idea that you can predict where the market is going to go, and therefore, in other words, make sensible decisions, is a fallacy. Uh, it's completely impossible. Because, unfortunately, well, we can go straight into it. So, yeah. behavioral finance is this. Okay, <laughs> let's put it this way. Hold on one second. I'm going to pause you for one moment, <laughs> okay. because we have a very, very good theme song. Oh, yeah, that, it would, that it would be sad. Oh, it would be sacrilege not to play. So you wanna you wanna intro the the theme song like like you do maybe in Showstopper. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome to the Jamie Kavanagh talk. Explain it to Jamie theme song. Amazing. I couldn't have done it any better. How did you fit the band in your luggage to bring them over here? I didn't tell customs. (laughs) They're amazing. They're really good. I think good work, guys. Great great work. Um, So, behavioral... Finance. Yeah, the, fa- the fallacy of thinking that you understand what it's going to do. Exactly. So, okay, okay. let's start with this. Classical economics oh states, God. I know you love it. Dylan, uh, <laughs> Jesus, fuck. <laughs> Classical economics state basically assumes one thing, uh, and it's a fundamental thing, which is that um, the, the, the humans are rational, yeah. and therefore, uh, if you uh, if you give some, if you make something more expensive, then they're less likely to want it. If you make it cheaper, they're more likely to want it. Basically, everyone will take all the information that they've got, and they will always, if they've got the information, will make the most rational decision. Uh-huh. Okay, and the only reason people make irrational decisions is because they don't have the right information. Okay, uh-huh. that's the basic assumption of classical economics. That's how you make, you know, that's how they plan everything from government policies um, all the way down to you know babysitting groups. They'll kind of go, well, how do we uh, 
um, how do we make babysitting groups really work efficiently? Well, we have to motivate people in the right way. Well, if we mean that they get more coupons to babysit other people, then that means that more of them will do it. Okay, so, right. so basically, all of these things you're are there. trusting that a group will always uh, uh, flock to the correct decision. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. and the only problem where people make mistakes, essentially, as a group, you know, individuals might make uh, errors, but as a large group of people, um, they will, on average, uh, make the right decision uh, as long as they have the right information. So when it comes to the stock market, should you invest in a particular company? Well, assuming that the company's not lying about its balance sheet and its books and its you know, prospects, yeah. um, then actually the, the price that the, that the uh, stock market, which has, you know, hundreds of thousands of participants all buying and selling, the price that eventually gets settled on will be, therefore, the, quote, right price, Correct whatever that price, means. Right? Yeah. That's the basic assumption. Uh, behavioral finance says that is a load of shit. <laughs> that is absolutely bollocks. It is fundamentally misunderstands humans. Yeah. Humans are systematically bad at making decisions. Right. Now, okay, think of it this way. In, in evolutionary terms, what are we good at? We're good at... Um, we're good at uh, vision. Musicals. Improvised musicals. <laughs> we're great at vision, right? We're very good at looking at stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So it means our, our, our visual cortex is a massive chunk of our brain. Yeah. This is something that, by the way, I'll be quoting a lot from a guy called Daniel Ariely, uh, who's a fantastic uh, behavioral econo economist. Shout out to uh, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel's fantastic. He's uh, uh, not that I know him personally, uh, though I've tried to actually have, recruit him for one of our conferences once. He's brilliant. So go and check Where out his Where is he from? Talk. Is he from London? Yeah, uh, he's from Israel. He's from yeah. Israel. But wow. he's currently at like, MIT or one of those big universities. Right, right, right. Anyway, he's a brilliant behavioral economist. Um, so there'll be lots of examples from his work in this. Anyway, so as he puts it, um, we've got this massive visual cortex, and we are brilliant at looking at things, like with a, a tiny flash of someone's face from a distance, and you'll just know, absolutely, that's my brother, okay? Mm -hmm. If you look at the processing power a computer would be required to do the same thing, it would be huge, and it would be inaccurate, but we can be really certain. Mm. And yet, if you show someone like a Rubik's Cube with weird shadows on it and say, which of these two colors is the same... Uh, they'll get it systematically wrong. Right. You know, the famous one where you have two tables and one of them is like, you know, uh, at one angle and one's at a different angle and we just can't tell the difference. You know, right, we can't right, tell right. which one's longer and which one is shorter. Like we are absolutely prone to very basic visual illusions. Yeah. And we can't fix that. Like if we look again, we're still wrong. Yeah, well, something me and Richard talk about and we reference a lot is this book called Capitalist Realism, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know if you're familiar with, no. with, with that term. The idea, um, it's by this sort of, I think he was like a, sort of a punk rock blogger who wrote wrote a ton of blogs, very anti-neoliberalism, anti-late capitalism blogs, and uh, turned it into a book and ultimately killed himself. And, oh and I mean, you read the book and you go, it, it feels pretty hopeless. But it, um, cap capitalist realism, this is such a, you know, a short version of description, but effectively the idea that because we have grown up in a capitalist system, we can't imagine a system outside of capitalism yeah so it can, it, sh it cannot exist you know because you, and and which of course is, is an optical illusion in itself because yeah. because we are born in this dimension we, we we see the world in three dimensions but we can't understand a fourth fifth sixth dimension because yeah. we never that's a bit like Wittgenstein. Uh, so Wittgenstein yeah. basically believed that, uh, so in my philosophy degree. Yeah, shout out to Wittgenstein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go on, you Ludwig. Um, so yeah. Wittgenstein basically said that we cannot understand the world outside of the language in which we, t we express it. Mm. Uh, that basically, um, that, that is a, a jail inside, we have to inside which we have to reside. So if you try to explain stuff that is metaphysical, like outside the physics of the world, you can't actually do it using words that have been developed within the notion of what the world is. Um, so in fact, what you have to do is you have to just imply it through metaphor. Yeah. So his books are bonkers because he's kind of going, you know, it's a bit like this and a bit like this, but you just got to kind of feel your way through it because there's no point in us using actual words to describe it. Yeah. Well, that's why yeah. I've, I've, uh, I heard once that, po I mean, we're going on a bit of a digression, but I, I, that poetry is the truest way to say something, is the truest way to say something. It goes beyond grammar because grammar has restrictions on it as to what is proper order of words, commas, and so on. And poetry uh, throws the rules out and gives you a, a, a better, I guess, uh, yeah, another point of view, another dimension yeah, to, I, to understand. You, if you read some Wittgenstein, it, it reads a lot like poetry. It's incredibly compressed, right. uh, and it is. Oh, and there's implication there rather than it being explicit. Unlike all the other, uh, most of the other philosophers who are analytical philosophers, where they, in reams of writing, try to be as precise as possible. He sort of says that's a little bit futile for the stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, anyway that is a back, back to the point. <laughs> back to the point. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, yeah. So we are really prone to illusions, uh, and we're really good at visuals like we're very good at vision and yet we are prone to uh, optical 
mathematical illusions. Mm. How much worse are we when it comes to things like statistics, right? right? We are not evolutionarily designed to be able to think about, I mean, try to imagine 10 things. Yeah, you could do that, right? Just 10 yeah. objects, 10 Yeah, I could, I could do that. Are you sure? sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right, okay. Okay, yeah. imagine, but seeing them all, you know, individually, all in your mind, okay? You got them there, they're 10, and you kind sure. of scan around in your, in your mind's eye or however you do it. Right. Now imagine 100 cups. Right. Okay, really, but really imagine there's 100 there. Can you kind of feel? Yeah. It gets yeah. a little harder, right? But you can imagine sort of what that might be. Yeah. So then imagine 1,000 cups. Right. Okay, it becomes like a bit of a mass. Yeah. But 1,000 cups is 10 times more than 100. Yeah. Is it, is it 10 times more in your head? No way. No. No, it's no, probably it's, just it, multiplied by three. Yeah, it's a bit like more, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, now imagine 100,000. Yeah. Now imagine a million. Like, if you actually do, if you test people and you ask them what their actual grasp, of, uh, grasp is of $100,000, 100,000 yeah. people, and then you actually ask them what their grasp of a million people, uh, it's basically the same yes. for most people, unless they're you know, already are very good at this sort of stuff. And that's totally normal because 100,000 is not a number that we evolutionarily ever have to face. Right. It makes no sense. You've got your, your tribe. You know, we're basically, you know, Stone Age creatures, right? You've got your tribe. You've got at most 100 people you know. Yeah, well, what's the, the – there's some – there's a company – I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about their whole – deal is they have no office that has over 150 people yeah because that's the the like sort of the the critical mass of people that you might have found in a, a primitive tribal society well yes I mean that makes sense certainly there's been research done on on the total number of people you can have like a working relationship with and and so and it's about the same sort of numbers yeah. it, it depends on what you mean by working relationship but yeah often 100 or 150 so people often even if they've got a big company break down their business units mm. so that you can have a personal relationship with people because otherwise it's really hard to have any kind of cohesion and vision and so on right anyway exactly for that so we're just not built for that kind of thinking right. so therefore when you say to someone, uh, could you put a policy in place um, which is for, you know, uh, 60 million Brits or uh, 300 million or 350 million Americans? Uh, it's going to impact 0.01% of them in this particular way. It's basically impossible for us to have an intuitive understanding of it. Uh -huh. So when you ask people to have an intuitive understanding, and go, well, what does that feel like? They'll get it wildly wrong because our brains are not set up for that. Uh -huh. um, so what happens is politicians, when they're trying to pitch us these ideas, um, will have to put it in incredibly... Uh, story-driven narrative forms that brings it down to, you know, it's uh, Trump did this very successfully, actually quite a lot, where he would, uh, he would say, well, imagine this one, you know, girl in this one town and she's being badly treated, right. as if somehow that represents everyone Everybody. being badly treated. But in fact, that literally was just one person. And in fact, in a population of 350 million people, that person being mistreated is a massive success. Yeah. Because in almost every other system you can think of, it would be 100,000 people being mistreated. Right. So all this sort of policy stuff relies on us having a grasp of statistics, which we just simply don't have. And the only way to get around it is to be aware of our limitations and just to read a lot about what it might mean and what might it not mean. Uh, just constantly question why you believe the things you believe. Right. Anyway, so are you, are you advocating for like preschool statistics initiation that kids should be learning statistics from day one absolutely yes uh, uh, there's a limit to what they could learn yeah. but they absolutely should be learning that they can be fooled by their own brains and mm. that should be i think a fun thing that they could do uh there i'm going to give you some examples here mm. uh, of fun stuff yeah. like where you're going oh christ yeah my my uh, instinct about that my intuition about that is kind of wrong teach kids that really early and then they will they will just know that they're prone to that later on we can't avoid it like an optical illusion we can't avoid seeing it seeing it as the wrong color if you like right. but at least we know the kinds of things that we have to look out for so what you're saying is trump is really good at statistics uh, <laughs> <laughs> trump is very good at uh, at preying on people who have no idea about statistics Right, 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 yeah. right. Which is actually almost everyone, by the right, way, right. including me. Uh, I'm totally, obviously, in the same way as everyone else is, uh, guilty of this. Mm. So here we go. Yes. Um, okay, so let's let's ask this question. Why is it that stock markets have bubbles and why is it they have crashes? If you believe that um, classical economics says that we're all rational in large groups when we have the right information, yeah. why should there be a crash and why should there be a bubble? In a way, it shouldn't, because as soon as people are aware, you know, so they start selling a stock, and the stock price starts going down. But there should be a point at which they all go, well, we all have the information now. 
Yeah. They should collectively agree on a price and just pay that. Either they're not going to sell anymore because it's low enough, or they all sell at the same time. But they don't. There is a, uh, a sort of slow building of momentum where people suddenly start panicking. Oh, my God, that company, well, it must be worse than we thought. Uh, and then it gets worse and worse, and more and more people start selling it, and it gets lower and lower, until the people who are the clever people go, this is too cheap. Yeah. Well, I'll buy it now. And That's then me. those people make a lot of money. That's me. I'm all, I'm all, I only buy things cheap and I'm very good at the stock market. But it's true, you know, you should be, uh, you know, you could wait. It, there is a very, you could totally yeah. wait for a company to share price to crash yeah. uh, and then just buy it when everyone tells you it is the worst thing to do. Yeah. Is generally a very good investment well, that's, uh, strategy. That's Warren Buffett's thing. Buy when Absolutely. there's fear and sell when there's, when there's greed. When there's yeah, greed, yeah, exactly that. So, but those things shouldn't happen if people are rational and they and all the information is already in the market. Right. Okay, so they don't. So here's, I'm going to basically go through a bunch of what they call cognitive biases right. that we all suffer from. Great. And I'll give you some examples of how that works. So here's a bunch. Um, one which is uh, very, very common. It's uh, by a, a, another economist called uh, Richard Thaler, uh, who really talks about this. So again, read his stuff. It's brilliant. Anyway, basically it is called mental accounting. Mm. What happens is when you talk about money, we basically put different bits of money in different pots and we treat them separately. So if you get a tax rebate from the government, mm. people will tend generally treat that as a windfall and they'll tend to spend it. But if you just didn't pay the tax in the first place, you'd probably save it instead. Right. Yeah? You wouldn't go, oh, free gift. Yeah. I'm going to go out and spend it. Like, <laughs> no, no, you need to put that in your pension. Otherwise, you're going to be poor when you're older. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but that's exactly how people treat it. Yeah. They also, there's a big problem that people have with uh, losses and gains. So if, uh, this is again a famous example of a real one. So you ask, imagine you had two stocks. And one of those stocks has done really well and has gone up and up and up. Another one of those stocks, you bought it, but it's actually gone down. And in fact, you're pained by the fact that it's gone down, right? It's like, oh, that share price has gone down, but I believed in the company. Yeah. So now I'm going to say, I've got a new opportunity for you, or you want to go on holiday or something, something that you want to do. And you're going to have to raise the money to go on holiday. Come to London, do 50-hour report. <laughs> uh, do you want to sell the stock that's done well, or do you want to sell the stock uh, that's done badly? Uh would you, I'd probably you sell the one that's done well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what you'd think, right? Right. And almost everyone would do that. Uh, but the reason why is uh, the one that's done well, obviously, could just be doing well because it's a really good stock and it's going up and up. Yeah. It's not necessarily a great idea to sell the one that's gone up. Right. It might be that it's reached its peak, but actually people will make that decision anyway. Yeah. Uh, instead, it might be more sensible to sell the one that's done badly because you probably just made a bad decision you know, yeah. or it's quite likely made a bad decision. But people hate doing that yeah if a stock has gone down even they will hold on to it uh because uh, until at least it's come back up to the price they paid for it okay? right well past any kind of reason about the stock and the reason is because there is an emotional pain to crystallizing loss yes okay here's a good thing so uh, what got me into the stock market was this big cannabis boom in uh in canada yeah, right huge. so they're, they they said they're legalizing marijuana all of a sudden these Companies uh, materialized and a, a, a massive bubble formed in the market, and I was just like a lot of people was like, "Oh, okay, I think there's I think there's money to be made here." I started investing my money, and uh, you know it went up for a while, and then it went it went down, and I ended up uh, selling at a loss not not a massive loss, it was, but I but I sort of I I as I said to my friends, it was, you know it was a five hundred dollar education I got, yep. you know of mm. I sold at a loss. Because I did, I realized I didn't understand the industry I was buying into, and and also, you know, I was I was watching it as too frenetic. I, I wanted to be in companies that I I understood, companies that I, I felt like weren't going anywhere anytime soon, could only grow over time. And so, you know, now I you know I read books, watched YouTube channels, did some research, and and decided what those companies are. I I now sleep easier mm. because of it. But the the but the the decision to sell. That those stocks was a very difficult one for me because I didn't want to admit to myself that I had made a mistake. Made a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly uh, very. It's, it's absolutely normal. It's very, very common. In fact, the fact you managed to do it is a discipline which is essential if you want to be a successful investor. Is actually being able to separate yourself out from the bad decisions you made and go. Even though this is emotionally painful, I'm going to just take the loss. Yes. Uh, people find it really difficult. Anyway, so mental accounting—it's a big problem and it causes uh, all sorts of mistakes. Mm. <clears throat> 
Uh, another one is obviously herd behavior. People just believe, you know, if your friend jumped out of the window, would you would you follow them? You know, your mother might ask you. Um, most people would. Yeah. <laughs> Turns yeah. out that's exactly <laughs> what they do. Because they go, well, look, if 100 people have done it, I mean, then probably it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's not totally unreasonable. Like, there are many situations in which well, loads of people doing something is yeah. because they've all hopefully put a bit of thought into it. Therefore, it is more likely that that's a good decision. Right. But, of course, it's also totally likely that they've only done it because the other people were doing it. Right, right. Yeah. That was That's what caused the big lemming disaster of 18. Oh, that the lemming disaster! Is awful. Yeah. <laughs> One went and the others went, and the others just said, "What are you, a lemming?" Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. There's what that's another bit of cognitive bias is is herd behavior. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to just be aware. Why are you doing it? Are you mm -hmm. doing it because you actually think all those people have made a wise decision and I understand their decision? That's why I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Or are you just kind of assuming that they must all have it right? Uh, we see herd behavior, of course. Everywhere, like, you know, let's say like TV development, you know, you'll just literally have three series about, you know, Victorian detectives and then and then the, the producers will go, um, there's there must be demand for, you know, Victorian TV detectives because look at all the others. You go, no, there's demand for good shows that three of them just happened to be Victorian detectives and you're going that somehow the solution is Victorian detectives. In fact, I got I had this from a from a, a production exec. Uh, after It's Always Sunny in Philly, right? Yeah. Very successful, and it came out of impro improvisers. Mm -hmm. That's how they started. They were improvising it. And so therefore, because that was so successful, they literally told this exec to come to Europe and find improvisers to develop a series right. because they thought the success of that series was because it was improvised. Right. Not because the people were good and made wise choices and were good actors and had good ideas. Right. No, no, because somehow that one tiny element, which is how they happened to develop it, right. was somehow the thing, right? Right, right, right. Total nonsense. Um, but that's, that's people believe that because they are looking for a reason. Right. And looking to make sense of something rather than admitting the fact the truth of it is that 99% of what happens is just luck. Well, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, this is now the third time I've quoted this book this weekend, but the first time I'm quoting it to you, mm. um, there's this book called 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, um, which I I read kind of on a whim, but I love it. It's, I, it's, it's so interesting. A very good sociological book about like why marketing works on people. And one of the laws of it is the law of firsts. So first to market gets uh, around 40 to 50% of a market share. In any industry, second to market gets 25% market share, third to market 10 to 15, and then everybody else shares the last 10 to 15%. And, um, um, oh no, don't lose it. Oh yes, the, <laughs> idea, the idea that the first to market gets that much market share, despite whether they are the best product or not. Mm is irrelevant. You know, is Apple the best PC? Or, uh, or like a, a, a personal computer, do, do they make the best phone? Or were they just the first one that you heard of and the one that you, you, you think of? Uh, it's an interesting one there, yeah. But I, I'm not sure if I... I know that does happen sometimes. Yeah. My experience as a financial journalist and looking at lots of companies have entered new markets, yeah. especially in tech is actually first movers uh, lose everyone all their money. Right. That's, that's actually incredibly no common because all the R&D costs are up front. So someone will develop a technology first and, right. and all the first uh, movers will take it mm. and they will buy it. And then what will happen is someone else will come in afterwards and go, now you've done all that work. Actually, I can do this for half the price. Right. So I'm not sure if that's... I think that's true that the first mover in a... After there's a like technological maturity yeah. who comes in like with big money, mm. absolutely. But I would say a lot of that. In fact, I know there's loads of cases where right, the right. first mover to market actually lost all their money. In fact, I've got friends of mine who had companies that uh, literally did that. They developed the technology right. and it cost them, you know, ten million in just development. Uh, but and then someone else came in and went, oh well, now you've done that development, I can I can get some some. You know, guy in India to just program this, and it takes you know, cost ten thousand. Right. So you're saying I should be very careful investing in Tesla. Uh, Tesla is a really interesting one, but again, the technology of Tesla is not is not was not started by Tesla, yeah, but loads yeah, of the yeah. incremental improvements were started by Tesla. But Tesla is a great example of where you're going. Yeah, they the R and D spend. Tesla has lost huge amounts of money, right? Yeah. Because basically, Elon Musk uh, is incredibly wealthy, and he has just said, "I'm going to put my money into this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the world a better place by personally funding huge amounts of tech." Yeah. You know, the biggest, like all the, almost all the technological improvements we've seen throughout uh, the 20th century, the big tech improvements, uh, were not paid for by companies that did well out of them. They were paid for by the American taxpayer, mm. usually through like the space uh, mm. agents, the space development agency or through, or through uh, military development. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of common, common occurrence for like the, the government spending on, on military and, and space uh, technology, oh, but like 
who was who was saying they didn't understand why what like they're like no private market is how you you make big advancements in technology but for years it's been governments you know rolling the dice on this new technology this new technology this new technology and the and the private sector follows suit yeah and then then they make money out of it yes. absolutely you know yeah. teflon and there's loads of you know enormous numbers of examples uh, all tech stuff so essentially that so that's an example where the first mover simply lost loads of money right because right. they and the only reason that's that was acceptable is because they weren't commercial body they were governments they were yeah. basically taxpayers anyway so yes so there's all of that as well so uh so that's that's that te- that's that, that, there's that tendency there's another really interesting one actually as well again about people not quite understanding where they're from we are very bad at knowing how much something is how much something costs. We're yeah. actually very bad at knowing what something is out of context. Mm. So if you showed someone, um, if you showed someone like a, a building uh, and it had no other buildings next to it uh, from a distance, and you ask them to judge how high it is, it's really hard. Right. But then you put it next to a building that they're familiar with, and suddenly they can. It's incredibly easy, right? Everything is uh, relative to other things. So when it comes to costs, uh, that's exactly what happens. So um, if I asked you, you know, how much is this bottle of wine worth, and I explained the wine, or I said, here's a mouse, and it's uh, this kind of mouse, uh, and it's a, you know, it's a gaming mouse, and it's got this, that, and the other, and I explained it. Uh, and then I said to you, how much do you think it costs? Really hard to do it. But if I said to you, well, here's a basic Microsoft mouse. Yeah. Yeah, that is very, very, you know, that's $20. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, here's this Razer mouse, which has got all gaming features and flashing lights. Then you'll go, oh, okay, uh, well, relative to the $20, it's probably going to be twice as much or three times as much. Right. Okay, so it's called anchoring, and we are terrible at, um, at deciding the prices of things without having something next to it. Which is why cell phones now cost $1,000 for, for you know, an iPhone, whereas they, you know, a few years ago they were 500 yeah, and it's, and it's all about, you know, is that worth it or not? Well, it's, it's only relative to the next thing yeah. you see. So here's some examples. So this is a, a, a test that Daniel Ariely again did. And he, this is a really interesting uh, version of it. So I forget the actual details of it. But basically, he got a bunch of his students uh, at the university he was at at the time. And he showed them all these, a bunch of stuff that they might want, like a bottle of wine. Uh, there was a gaming mouse in there. There was a bunch of other things as well. And they just described them. And they said, everyone in the room, uh, just, you know, this is an auction. Put in a bid for these things that you might want. And, of course, a bunch of people wanted them. And, therefore, they put in bids for them. So you work out what the average uh, in the room, what people thought they were worth. Okay, Um, And then he asked them to do this. So they had to do that on a piece of paper. But at the top of the piece of paper, before they started, he asked them to write the last two numbers of their national insurance number. Okay, which is just a t- random two-digit number, right? Right. 12 or 29, 63, 99, yeah. whatever. It's just random because it's just the end of your NI number. Um, but he did that, and he said that was so he knew who was which. Right. That was a lie. As for almost all like psychological tests and, and uh, behavioral finance tests, you always have to lie to the people taking the test about what it's really about. Right, right, right. Uh, but that was a very important part of the test. So this is what happened. The people who wrote high numbers at the top of their sheet uh, were massively higher in their estimation of the, of the prices of things that they saw in the, in the auction than the people who wrote low numbers. If they wrote 83 at the top, then they would put things 20%, 30% higher in price um, than the people who wrote 12 at the top. Because it's in reference to the number that's at the top of the yeah, page. Yeah, even though it literally was just like their national insurance number, was not supposed to be a dollar of value at all. It was just the, a random number that they put at the top of their sheet, oh and God. it massively influenced them. And these People were bright are so students. Stupid. We're, we're so fucked. Yeah. We're, we're so fucked. <laughs> we, uh, we think we can go to Mars? Yeah. We, we, but no. we are massively influenced. Yeah, we here's don't another, even know where Mars is. Here's another we're going to get out there. It's going to be the size of a ping pong ball. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it looks so big relative to the other. So, uh, so here's another example. That was a there was a toaster. There was a company. This is a, 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 a bunch of people at um, Warwick University were doing this test. Yeah. So there's a company that sold toasters. And um, they had their regular toaster and their deluxe toaster. And they had a problem. And the problem was that no one bought their deluxe toaster. Uh, it had a few extra features. It was pretty cool. Definitely deluxe. Mm-hmm. Um, but people often would buy the standard toaster because I guess people, you know, wherever they were selling it in the shops, they were selling it out, would go, well, I don't really need a deluxe. So only a pretty small percentage of people bought the deluxe. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to try to improve this, but they couldn't find any way. They would promote it and they would market it, but they needed to, you know, make it cost more. Um, otherwise, what was the point? And they couldn't really get a massive number of people to buy it. Right. So what they did, and this was totally accidental, what they then did was some bright spark in there went, oh, let's do a super deluxe toaster. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Now, they did a super deluxe toaster, and uh, the super deluxe, however, was really bad. It was the same as the deluxe. It had a couple of extra features that were... Clearly not very helpful. Right. It looked slightly nicer and shinier, but basically it was clearly not usefully better 
than the deluxe toaster. Right. They just hoped that by putting those extra, you know, spit and polish on it, people would pay more. And they charged quite a bit more for it than the deluxe. Mm. But this is interesting. What actually happened was they put then now into all those shops, so the same brand you had, Standard, Deluxe, and Super Deluxe. What do you think happened? Uh, people thought the lowest cost one was bad because they, they, they started buying the, the middle one. Is that, is that, am I correct? They did. They yes. started buying the middle one, but they, not because they thought the standard one was bad. Oh. It's because when you go into a shop, and oh, this is the test they did at Warwick University, so they worked out what was going on there. Yeah. It isn't because they went in and they suddenly went, well, there's three of them now. I, the standard is a bad one. It isn't the tendency. There is a tendency for people to take the middle yeah. because they go, well, I'm not, I'm not profligate. I don't overspend. That's right. a different thing. That wasn't, they didn't, they accounted for that. That's not what was going on here. Uh, I'll give a bunch of other examples that shows it really clearly. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that. It was this. Uh, they would look and they would go, well, I don't really know how much to pay for a toaster. Is a toaster worth 20 bucks? 10? 50? 100? 150? I mean, it just toasts, right? Yeah. I mean, it might do other things like make your muffins warmer, but basically it does one fun, one thing and it's not obvious how much it should cost. If someone came up to you and said, five bucks for a toaster, you probably go, well, that's, yeah, I mean, I sure. guess. Yeah. Look at the materials. I mean, I guess so. You know, it just doesn't, it's not an unreasonable thing. But if I go up to you and say it's 100 bucks for a toaster, you might go, okay. The only reason you might even question it is because you previously bought toasters. Yeah. Uh, or you compare it to a fridge or something and go, well, that seems a little steep, right? But actually by itself, it's almost impossible to know. Is that toaster worth that much money? So this is what was happening. Right. They looked at the standard toaster. They looked at the deluxe, and they didn't, you know, and that cost 50 bucks or whatever. They looked at the deluxe toaster, 100 bucks. They didn't really know whether they wanted it or not. They didn't really know if it was worth that or not. But, you know, so they fall off and they go for the standard. But then they saw the super deluxe, and the super deluxe was 150. And they did know one thing the super deluxe was overpriced. Yes. Because it was only a tiny bit better than the deluxe, and it was 50 bucks more. Right. So I'm getting a deal. I'm, I'm, I'm giving up these, you know, it doesn't, it does, it's not Alexa's boyfriend or whatever, but. It does toast and it will play me Spotify. Absolutely. It does yeah. almost everything else. So they knew the deluxe was a good deal relative to the super deluxe. Right, and right. suddenly the deluxe toasters started flying off the shelves. Yes. Yeah. So what's happening is you introduce a third apparently useless option. Yes. And it makes suddenly the thing that's near to it seem incredibly attractive because you can compare one next to the other. There's an old restaurant trick. That is, uh, you go on a lot of menus and to people that are wise to this and you and you find the drink that is $25 or $30. They'll put something, you know, or we'll, they'll have some super rare whiskey that is $50 for a, a dram of it. And um, and they'll, they'll stick it on the menu. Not that they ever expect anyone to buy it, but what they do is they increase the price of every other drink by $2 because all of a sudden it's not a $50 thing of whiskey. Fifty dollars is yeah. too much for whiskey. But I'll I'll pay twenty for 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 something that's Whereas if you started good. from nothing and if you started and the high most expensive drink was was twenty bucks and they were that people would only want to buy it ten bucks. Now yes. but actually what that is what you're describing there is anchoring. Ah. So that is the fact that people don't really know what, what price to put it at. Therefore, give them any price yeah. and people will make it think it's relatively cheap to that, right? Mm. It's to say it's sales technique. If I wanted to come and sell, sell you a, a new laptop and you didn't quite know what the prices of laptops were, actually, we're quite good at knowing the prices now because of online. Yeah. But let's say it was something that you didn't know, like, um, you know, a car from a brand you didn't know, right? Yeah. Okay. But, you know, it looks quite nice. If I come in and just casually mention in conversation, you know, the 50,000 bucks that was spent on another car, uh, and then say, right, sorry about that. That's irrelevant. Now let's get to your car. This car is 30,000 bucks. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly it seems cheap, right? And yes, it's literally, yes, yes. I mentioned an apparently irrelevant thing. Anyway, so that is anchoring. That's not this. So this is because, uh, is, is because it's not that they needed another price. It was just that they, they can't tell whether they want the standard or the deluxe. They just know that the deluxe is better than the super deluxe. Mm -hmm. So here's another example. And this is one that Daniel Ariely did. Back to him again. Uh, he showed a bunch of people at university um, a picture of uh, two people. Mm. Uh, you know, let's call them Joe and Bill and just show them the picture and ask a bunch of people, uh, did they find them attractive? Who would they rather go on a date with? Okay, Joe okay. or Bill? Right. And asked a bunch of people, women or hetero women or, or, or gay men and just asked them like, which one do you prefer? And there was a certain breakdown, like 40% like Joe and 60% so sort of went for Bill. Then what he did was, he did, uh, and so he got a very strong baseline of right, generally what the population thinks. Then he did the test again, a whole bunch of new people, but this time he introduced an ugly Joe. Okay? okay, it was Joe, but made to look like it was a Joe's uglier brother. Right. Okay, quite similar to Joe, but not the same person. Right. Pretty similar. In fact, actually, they used Photoshop quite cleverly, so it looked totally realistic, but just right. looked like someone who's, you know, maybe was a cousin or looked similar to him. Right. Everybody fell in love with the tester. Uh, <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, uh, eighty percent of people wanted Joe and not Bill. What? Why? Because they saw ugly Joe. 
Oh. And they went, ah. Because you can't really tell if you want to go out with someone based on their picture. It's one of the factors. But you don't really know, right, until you actually meet someone. There's a million things. So you kind of go, well, he looks a bit more attractive. But then that isn't everything, right? Because what behind the eyes is there? Is it you know are they funny or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then if you show them Joe and then you show them a slightly uglier version of Joe, yeah, but they don't know. It, they think it's two different people. Then they go, well, he's definitely more attractive than than, than ugly Joe. Right. Um, and suddenly Bill becomes far less attractive. And this is just a very very well established test. Everyone massively changed their minds, if you like, and they would move towards. Uh, the thing that they could compare something else to. Right. Well, that's the cliche that like junior high and high school girls do, right? Is they have the, they have ugly friends, so they look better by comparison. Absolutely. But the ugly friend needs to be quite similar looking to you, just not quite as good as you. <laughs> right, so if right. you go, and this is something Daniel Ariely says, if you want to go bar hopping right. and you want to maximize your chance of picking someone up, you need to go with someone who looks a bit like you, but is uglier. Right, right. Not really good for diversity, I have to no, say. It, no, it's absolutely not. <laughs> but, uh, but a similar thing actually happened with, uh, uh, there was um, uh, in a co- the Economist magazine, right? They did a deal, uh, he mentions this again, Daniel Larry mentions this in one of his talks, where they actually said for uh, like 50 bucks you could have uh, The Economist online and for 125 bucks you can have the um, you can have the print uh, and for print and online combined also 125 bucks. Okay? It's like basically it was like a mistake in their marketing. Yeah, yeah. Let's put the wrong thing down, but that's what it said. Yeah. So 50 bucks for online, 125 bucks for print, 125 bucks for print and online. Right. Well, this is interesting. So again, I really went, well, let's test this. Like maybe they're just being really clever. Well, and you ask them, what do you want? Now, you know, no one said they just wanted print only. Yeah. Okay, good. So they're not idiots. Um, <laughs> uh, but a certain percentage went for it, but a large percentage went for both the mixture of print and online. Okay, they went, I'll go for that, like 60%, 70%. He then did the test again with a whole bunch of new people, but this time he took out the useless print only. Yeah. So he just had online and print, uh, and print and online, and suddenly a massive chunk of them went just to online because they went, well, I probably only need online because they didn't have a thing to compare it to. Right. Yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing that we've made it this far. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, so there you go. So that's a really interesting thing about that comparison. So if you want to someone to uh, like something more, you give them something that looks very much like it, but it's clearly worse, right. and then they're more likely to go for the thing you really wanted them to go for. Wow. There you go. That's a bias we have. That's amazing. Yeah. i got to start thinking of some real shitty podcasts that I can, I can start yeah. ad- advertising on, on, our, uh, on our page. Exactly. It's a bit like yours, but not quite as good. A bit yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Um, anyways, there's, a, there's another thing I want to talk to you about, uh, yes, which yes. I think is really fun. Uh, okay, okay. There's a, there's a, we can't get through everything because we're out of time. But yeah, yeah. here's a really imp- – I'm going to show you one really important one and then one fun one. Yeah. This is a really important one, okay? It's called base rate neglect. Base rate neglect. Or the base rate fallacy. Yeah. Um, and it's this it's that we don't know how common something is uh, so therefore okay here's an example 50% of accidents happen within 5 miles of your house in your yes. car okay yes. that's like a common that's sort of statistic I don't know if it, that's real but it's something like that okay right. um, and so when you think that the uh, what do you think is the what outcome should we get from that what do we what, what should you uh, what wisdom should you get from me saying that? You should be living further away from your house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one. Um, that, what does it mean? What does it mean if I say, you know, 50% of accidents occur within five miles? It, I mean, maybe you drive safer closer to your house. Or right. something like that. Something like that, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. So, oh, no, no, no. 50% of accidents occur near your house, within five miles of your house. So, yeah, so maybe, I mean, beha- Oh, sorry, so therefore you should. Behaviorally, I would be more careful. Yeah, but what, so therefore, do you think it's therefore our tendency is to, is to drive less carefully near our house? Is that what you reckon yeah, seems yeah, to yeah. be the implication of that, right? Yeah, you're close to home, you're, you, you know the road's better, you... You become careless. You become careless. That's absolutely what almost everyone assumes when you say that stat, right. okay? And it's not necessarily true. It could be true. Oh, it's just because you spend more time that That's course it. of your house. <laughs> you're, oh, you're my, oh, I'm part of the of problem. Your, 90%, <laughs> exactly. 90% of your journeys are going to be within, well, they're going to be less than five miles from your house. Right, right, so right. So actually, 50% of accidents happening might be very much lower. You might be much safer near your house than away from your house. Right. Yeah, because if you're 90% of your time is spent within five miles of your house, then actually, if only 50% of the accidents happen there, yeah. that means actually further away is, uh, is is more dangerous. You're safer near your house. Right, right, right. Right, so that's a, that's base rate neglect or base rate fallacy. We didn't know what the norm was. Like, what's the thing you're measuring it to? So here's uh, here's some here's some maths for you. Okay. okay. I'm going to give you another example because I think it's good. I just worked this out yesterday while I was just thinking of this. Okay. Um, there's a test um, for a rare disease. We're going to see if you've got it or not. The disease? Yeah, All we're right. going to see, okay? Um, yeah. It is a 99% accurate test. Okay. And it's very specific. 99% of the time, it is, 100, it is completely accurate. Yes. And 1% of the time, it gets it exactly wrong. All right. 
Okay. So if I so if I gave you the test and you had the disease, ninety nine percent of the time it would say correctly, and one percent it would literally say you definitely don't. Yes. When you do. Okay. So that's that's our setup for this. Right. 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 Now then. Uh, imagine that you've got a disease, but it's quite a rare disease. Uh, on average, one in 10,000 people get this disease. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So that's what it is. In Canada, therefore, that's going to be what? 3,600 3, people. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's 36 million people, whatever it is. Anyway, um, so one in 10,000 people. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we're actually yeah. recording now, so if you could. Uh... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> all right. Okay. So. Yeah, so imagine there's this rare disease uh, that only one in 10,000 people have, and we're trying to work out whether you've got it or not. But the test, as I said, is 99% effective. 99% of the time is right, 1% is exactly wrong. So, I give you the test. It says you have the disease. Oh, God. Oh, God, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. All right. What do you reckon? What is, your, what is your intuition? Not trying to work it out. Literally, what would be your intuition? A 99% effective test, I give it to you, and it says you've got the disease. Yeah, Therefore, I would believe it. I'd say yes. Very I'd likely that you've got the disease. Have it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. I'd probably ask a second opinion. Yeah, you might, but only because <laughs> yeah. you don't want the disease. Oh, yeah, or I'd ask it. 99 other opinions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so exactly, almost everyone would believe that. If I said it's a 99% effective test, yeah. and 1% it gets it false, mm -hmm. um, uh, but this disease is quite rare. One in 10,000 people get it. Do you have it? Their assumption is if you, if I give you the test and it says yes, you're going to go, well, I've almost certainly got it. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a very small chance that I haven't got it. Right. Right. It's completely wrong. You're far, far more likely to not have the disease, even though I've given you a 99% effective oh, test. Oh, because, because? 1% of, of, of 100 is 1%, but 1% out of 10,000 is... Much less than that. Much, much less than that. So I'll give you, and I'll put it into, an, into another way. It's exactly right. So let's imagine this. Imagine there's 10,000 people that I'm testing. They all file into this theatre, yeah. and I'm going to test every single one of those 10,000 people, okay? Now, um, let me actually look at the numbers here to make sure I get this right. So there's 10,000 people there. Oh, yeah, so this test is going to tell, tell 100 people. 100 that, people. That they have it that they when have only it. one of them does. Exactly right. I'm a goddamn genius. Yes, you are. <laughs> it's exactly I don't have the right. disease. So a hundred people exactly are misdiagnosed right, think, right. when they're told that they've got it, but actually they don't. Yeah. And only one of them actually does because it's one in ten thousand. We said that's how many. Right, so right. therefore, no, almost nine, basically ninety nine percent of the time, yeah, uh, that test is going to give you the wrong answer. Right. Even though it's a ninety nine percent effective test, it, sh it is it is correct ninety nine percent of the time. But because the disease is so rare, yeah. Uh, therefore, it's far more likely that you be misdiagnosed uh, when you get the positive response. Right. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Great. I'm so that's invincible. called base rate fallacy, uh, and it's a massive problem. It's actually a big problem with like Down syndrome with kids, actually, uh, because it's exactly because I've gone through this with my kids, where you have you know do you want to have this test with Down syndrome? Right. Um, and uh, but if you're relatively young. And they'll say it's like, uh, you know, 90%, 95% uh, likely to tell you the truth and 5% not. Right. Well, you're going, well, since it's, it's only one in 400 kids get it, 90, mm. it literally is far more likely, if it's a positive test, it's far more likely that it's incorrect. That it's incorrect. Right, right. Because it's such a rare disease. Therefore, it's literally useless taking the test. Wow. I know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my head around. The, um, the limitations of our ability to picture information. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. obviously, there are other tests. If you had a test, for example, where uh, it was like 99% accurate and then 1%, it just had no result, that's different. Right. Okay. But if, but when you have false positives, um, then you have to be incredibly careful. You have to look at what the base rate is. What is the underlying, you know, how, how often does this sort of stuff happen? In, right. In the the disease is one in 10,000. That's, that's, the, that's the key thing you need to know. The key thing. So there you go. That's another thing. And there's yeah. one, one last thing yeah, yeah, yeah. I think would be fun, which, uh, which is about cheating. Uh, this is something you should just, okay, what you should really be doing, go again. This last one is actually back to Daniel Ariely uh, because it's just, he's just got this fantastic, he's just done the work on it. Yeah. Um, go to, he's got a TED talk. Uh, he's got a bunch of them, but this is the one you should look at. Uh, mm. So something to do with our buggy moral code, I think it's called. Look at it. It's brilliant. It's 20 minutes uh, and he's brilliant at it. Uh, and this is the thing. Why do we cheat? Uh, how do we cheat and how can you encourage people to cheat more or less? You mean like cheating in relationships or just cheating, cheating generally? Just cheating generally. Lying, cheating, doing things that we regard as immoral, going against your word, uh, right. all that stuff, like breaking laws, that right. sort of thing. Uh, advantage, I guess, would be the why we cheat. Yeah, and if you're a uh, if you're a classical economist, as we've said, uh, absolutely, why would you cheat? Well, you cheat if the, uh, the, 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 the classical economist would have to say you cheat um, uh, when the rewards from cheating um, 
multiplied by the, uh, you know, uh, you just literally add up rewards for cheating and then you add up the penalties for being caught right. multiplied by the chance of getting caught. Right. So if you're more likely to get caught, then it, then therefore, you know, the, therefore the punishment weighs more heavily on the scales. Right, okay? right, right, right. Uh, if you're very unlikely to get caught, you might do it anyway, even though it's a, it's a pretty heavy penalty. Right. Um, and also, how much do you gain from the cheating? And the more you gain, the more likely you are to do it. Yeah. That is, of course, that's exactly how economists have to approach it if they're classical economists. However... That's not how we function. It is completely wrong, and there's a bunch of tests which have shown this, right. uh, at least in certain, in certain areas, and I'm going to explain some for you. So what he did was uh, he got a bunch of people to fill in a maths test. Yeah. Uh, these are all, again, students all thinking they're doing a maths test, when, of course, they're not. Uh, and he would pay them for every right answer. So they had you know, half an hour to answer some quite difficult questions. And then uh, for every right answer they filled in, they get paid a dollar or something. He actually tried it with lots of different amounts, but let's say a dollar. Right. And he got a baseline. You know, on average, students would uh, would get four of these questions right because they're quite hard questions, and they got paid four dollars, and then they left. Right. So then he goes, well, now we're going to now we're going to encourage them to cheat. Okay. Yeah. And let's see if that changes the you know the the overall answer. So then what he did was he got a bunch to um, well he said you mark your own sheet, yeah. and then you tear it up, and you throw it in the bin, and uh, and then you tell me how many you got right and you get paid. Right. No one ever got picked up for that. They never would ever check. Yeah. So it's just would they would they cheat? We just want to know how much money we're giving out That's when it. when when they have to tell the truth and how much we're giving out when they're allowed to lie. Yeah, exactly. And we we can always tell because uh, they, they set it up cleverly, so they actually knew. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the point is, suddenly the average number of, of uh, correct answers was four when people had to do it honestly, and suddenly when they were allowed to cheat, became seven. Right. Okay. So that is almost double. So there's a bit of there's a bit of cheating going on there. Yeah. And what was interesting was it wasn't like three people in the, each group that would cheat outrageously. Everyone cheats, but everyone cheats just a little bit. Yes, okay? yes. Almost everyone cheats. Not an unrealistic amount. Exactly. Yeah. And they do it even if they absolutely know they can get away with it. Like, he would then make it so much easier. There was a shredding machine. So right. they would fill in their own, they would mark their own, you know, responses, and they would put into a shredding machine, which yeah. they, these guys had fixed, so in mm. fact it didn't really shred. But they didn't know that, right? They didn't, there was no... No way of anyone ever knowing as far as the people taking the test was concerned. But still, they wouldn't cheat anymore. Right. They made it 10 bucks per right answer. Right. No difference. They made it 50 cents. They made it one, 10 cents per right answer. They didn't cheat less because it was you know, worth less money. And they didn't cheat more when they paid them more for it. It had no impact on their cheating at all. Right. The only, in fact, so as soon as there was basically not much chance of them being caught, they would, everyone would cheat a certain amount and that was it. And they couldn't get them to change that amount of cheating. Right. So what seems to be happening is... So it has nothing to do with the money. No, it's not. Yeah, and yeah obviously it's to do with the money in the very beginning of it. Yes. Like I'll get a bit of money out of it, but it didn't matter if it was 10 bucks or one buck. Right, right, right. Yeah, which does, again goes completely against what economists are trying to do where they go, well, we'll pay them more, they're more likely to do it. Right. No, not in this case. Not even slightly. Even 10 times the amount wouldn't make them cheat more. Right. There is a thing, what's happened, what seems to be happening, again, with all the research he did was, there's a thing which, uh, which Daniel Ariely calls the personal fudge factor. Yeah. It's basically how much can you cheat and still look yourself in the mirror and go, you are not a cheat. Right, 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 right. Like, you know. And it's 75% as it turns out. <laughs> there's a certain amount. Like, yeah. you, will, you, know, you, uh, you know, everyone will speed a bit. Yeah. But you won't speed that much. Right. Even if you can get away with it. You know, right. you're on an empty highway and there's no one around. But people won't go, you know, insane. I'll go, it's a little bit over. Yeah. yeah, that you're literally breaking the law, and the laws were put in place for fairly good reasons. Right. You know, everyone's got this notion of what they would do. But okay, here's bringing it back yeah. to your relativism thing: is uh, if everybody's cheating, everybody's fudging their answers. Now, all of a sudden, does the uh, baseline for what is moral uh, swing? Right, that's an incredibly good question. And yes, it does if they know. So in this case, no one knows how much everyone else is cheating. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people assume that no one else is cheating, and they cheat just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay, well, I'll start with how they managed to get them to cheat less, first of all. Okay? Yeah. It's very hard to get them to cheat less, but they managed to do it. And they, the things that worked for Ariely was they would get them to do things like this. Uh, they would get them to try to remember the Ten Commandments. Right. And then do the test. Yeah. Okay? That's not part of the test, but they go separately. First question, Ten Commandments, see if you can remember any of them. You won't get paid for it, but we just want you to do that. Don't, tell, right. don't say why. Now do the test, math test, you get paid a dollar each. Suddenly, cheating went to almost nothing. Right. That's pretty strong foot forward for the Christians. I Absolutely. <laughs> well, except, except that uh, self-avowed atheists would, were effect, as affected as people who were religious. Oh, wow. Yeah. In fact, uh, self-declared atheists who put their hand on the Bible swore on the Bible, which they don't believe in. Mm -hmm. uh, also, their, all their cheating came down to zero. Right, right. Yeah. So it's not 
the religious belief. It is being reminded that you have a moral code. Right, right, right. Uh, they actually did a really fun one uh, he mentions, which is MIT. He's, he actually got them to sign a thing at, at the top which said, I understand, uh, I understand that this falls under the MIT honor code. Right. Uh, and as he puts it in his talk on TED, uh, he says, this is particularly interesting because MIT don't have an honor code. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's made it up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that absolutely stopped people from, uh, from, from cheating. Right. Uh, there's also, uh, but the, the, now let's look at what made them cheat more. And how you can make them cheat more is uh, if you move it further away from money. Right. So they weren't being given money, but instead they were being given tokens. Right. And they give, okay, you get 10 tokens for every right answer right. that you give us. And what are the tokens for? Uh, plastic tokens, which you then, you would take 10, you know, 10 yards down to the next table and exchange for dollars. Right, right, right. But absolutely massively increased, like double the cheating. Right. That doubled the cheat. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not real. Because it's token suddenly. Even though they're just about to turn it into money. Right, right, right. Yeah, but because you're not, it's tokens, you're not directly not money. stealing money. You're, exactly. You're stealing something that you could trade for money. Absolutely. And, it, and But people go, and basically that's the lesson for also, you know, you look at all the uh, terrible things that have happened, like with companies lying and then, you know, like Enron and WorldCom, all those companies that suddenly collapse because their uh, senior management have just, you know, mismanaged things and lied and cheated and stolen from the shareholders who effectively are the owners. Yeah. And most of them do, were not directly, they're not taking money from babies, you know, or from pensioners. What right. they were doing was they were fiddling their share options. Right. Well, that seems, that's a million miles away from stealing from someone's pension. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were stealing from someone's pension because uh. a pension fund guy who, you know, has got his pension is invested in that company, owns that company. The money that the company makes gets paid for him and is how he is when he's like 80 years old. Right. It determines how much he's going to get that month. But know? isn't money just that for gold? <laughs> you know, like isn't, it, isn't, isn't money just a token that we all agree is worth something? Well, there is that too. Yeah. But that's, that's a whole separate thing. You're also <laughs> right. But of course, money might be that, but at least you can uh, fairly be sure that right, if you've right, got right. a dollar, you can go and buy a loaf of bread. Yes, yes. Uh, so that doesn't change that much. But yes, no, totally. There's a whole other thing about what the hell currency is. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there's no, you know, is there a reality to currency? Anyway, what's interesting is that, is that the further it's removed from actual money. So another example was he, got, he put a bunch of, um, he put Coke cans in shared fridges around campus. Yeah. Okay? And these are, Coke cans obviously belong to someone um, as far as everyone else is concerned. And then they basically just went, how quickly were those Coke cans stolen? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Pretty, pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People go and go. Oh, it's just a coke. I'll just take one. Yeah. And uh, he, they call it the half life of coke. You know, right. Pretty low. But then what they did was they put a little dish and they put in five single dollar bills in the fridges. Yeah. No one stole any. But it's exactly the same thing, right? If you take right. a coke can, it might be worth a buck, but yeah. no one would steal a buck, but they right. would steal a coke. Right. Yeah. Wow. No one would steal a. You know. Uh, you know, you might steal a pencil from work, but you yeah. wouldn't steal, you know, a dime yeah. from a from a Kit Petty cash box. Right, right, right. Okay, because that's stealing, and I'm a thief. Yeah, that's money. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if it's a, but if it's pencil, it's just a pencil. But right. it's worth the same. You're still stealing from the company, right. and you're stealing the same value, which is again why classical economists. It doesn't make sense to a classical economist because they have to go. Well, no, it is exactly the same. A pencil worth fifty cents is worth fifty cents. No, it's not. Right. It's not because psychologically they're massively different. In fact, another thing they did, which is really interesting, was uh, they got they did a test where they got a bunch of people and they were going to, um, they pretended that their wheel was broken, okay, mm -hmm. that they got a puncture. And they asked people as they went past and they said, could you help me fix the wheel? They actually did puncture the wheel and they would see if they could help them out. Yeah. And a certain percentage of passers-by helped. And they just did this for a long period of time. And then they did the same test again. But this time the person said, uh, would you help me? Oh, and by the way, I'll give you five bucks. Or I don't know how much it was, but it was like some small amount of money. Right. Now, what then happened was almost everyone refused to help. Because they went along and they were, they were thinking about helping. And the person says, I'll give you five bucks. And they went, no. Like, I don't, five bucks is like a pitiful amount yeah. for me to help you with, with your wheel. And you seem to misunderstand what our relationship is here. Right, right, right. So actually by offering extra money on top of just, can you help me for niceness? Right. Um, immediately turned everyone off and they wouldn't help these, the passers-by wouldn't help them anymore. It was like regarded as insulting. It's like it's the wrong kind of thing to offer. And it's far too little. If they'd offered a thousand bucks. And why maybe. is that, is that, is that because, you know, you, you help someone, you feel good about yourself and if you, if you accept money, especially such a small amount of money, it's not like, you're like, oh, man, I was going to have a good feeling helping you with your wheel, and now you're paying me so I don't get to have that feeling. Absolutely. And it's not enough money 
for me to want to give up that feeling. That's exactly right. There is basically, there are two economies yeah. running simultaneously. There is the money economy, and then there is the relationship economy. And yeah. they are completely different things. And as soon as you introduce money into the equation, uh, it, uh, it totally changes people's relationship. Uh, again, imagine this. Again, what's your intuition about this? Uh, you go to a dinner party, and you bring along a bottle of wine. Okay, And it costs you 10 bucks. You go to the, sh- the store, you buy a bottle of wine, you, and you give it to the host. And the host says, thank you very much. And then you drink it. Okay? Right. Now, if you're an economist, and uh, you're trying to be a classical economist where everyone's rational and everything has a value and values can be equally, you know, worked out, then ten, a $10 bill is better than a $10 bottle of wine. Because a $10 bill, uh, you can do anything with. Right. And it's worth exactly the same as a, a $10 bottle of wine. I mean, there's the convenience of going to the store to buy the wine. So, yes. so $10 bottle of wine is slightly better because of that. But the $10 bill, you might not like that wine. But this way, you can spend it on whatever you like. Yeah, this so, is why my grandma doesn't like giving money for Christmas. Yeah. Because she, she wants to see you enjoy a thing. That's it. Yeah, and she doesn't want to just give you $100. Yeah, exactly. It's meaningful. I, am, I say I'm totally the same. And if you went to a dinner party yeah. uh, and you didn't bring a ton bottle of wine, you went, look, I'm an economist. Uh, I'm a classical economist. Yeah. And I know that a $10 bottle of wine isn't, as, isn't worth as much as a $10 bill yeah. because this, you can do anything you like with it. Yeah. And the store's not far away if you really wanted that bottle of wine. So this is just better. Here's $10. Then yeah. the host would throw you out. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's how utterly insulting. inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you're going, but but an economist has to say, no, that's not insulting. That's that's how everyone runs their lives. Well, they don't. It's clearly not true. Right, right. Brings us back to this thing, you know, this uh, this this fundamental weakness uh, that economists are trying to work things out based on rational man and on everything having a value that can be calculated against each other. Right. But behavioral finance shows us, behavioral psychology shows us that it's completely untrue that humans are systematically irrational. Um, but not necessarily in a bad way. You know, it could just be for social reasons. But we are systematically irrational. Right. And therefore, can't be worked out in the same way. And yet we continue to hedge our bets and, and put more and more value on e- economical uh, policy and, and, uh, and advancement and, and, and things like that, despite the fact that it's, it's an irrational thing that can be taken advantage of. Well, uh, certainly when it comes to things like, you know, salaries. Salaries is really interesting, right? So you, one, of the, one of the measurements of a government success, for example, is, you know, how well is the economy doing? And there's lots of interesting things about that. Right. Um, so, but, you know, so like Trump will take credit. I mean, every government, is, it's not just Trump, yeah. every government will take credit for an economy that does well yeah. and uh, will tend to be blamed by the voters for an economy that goes badly, but often will blame the previous government for an you know, economy that goes badly. Right. It's almost impossible for a, com- for a government to impact an economy in any respect economies work on like 25 year cycles with interest rates and inflation Mm. gdp and stuff like it's really very little you can do i mean you can you can mess up an economy sure maybe yeah but it's very hard to make it any better so any leader who claims uh we fix the economy yeah it's just no no you were lucky you just got you just got you know you went into that you picked it up on the upswing that's all it is exactly yeah yeah. so there's absolutely no you know so uh uh, so but so often though that is the case that a success of a policy is measured, though, by things like, oh, well, salary's going up, your wage is higher. Well, all of this shows that people doesn't make them any happier. Like, it's, in fact, if you, uh, again, this anchoring thing, I'm getting paid 50 grand a month, uh, 50 grand a year for my job. <clears throat> is that good or not? Well, actually, it doesn't, you have no idea. All that really matters is, uh, do, you know, am I worrying about money? Um, can, I, can I do the things that I enjoy? If I get paid an extra five grand a year because I get a, a pay rise, uh, an economist would kind of have to say, well, that's 10% better than your previous thing. And, you, and this, all of this shows that is just not true. Right. You know, it does not make you 10% happier, you right. know, or, or better off in any sense other than purely the dollar sense. Right. Well, that's why they say the, the maximum impact uh, uh, that a salary can have on you is up to like $70,000, right? Like after $70,000 a year, money ceases to make you the, the same amount of happiness. Yeah. It's, it's actually the two things that seem to happen is one is um, if you get paid less than someone else in your job. Right. So when you can, again, this anchoring thing, when you can compare it directly to someone else, then you get really unhappy. And so ir- ir- irrespective of how much you're paid. Mm. So let's say you're paid a huge amount of money. Like I'm paid $200,000, but I know someone who I think doesn't do quite as good a job as me is being paid 250000 by the same company. Right. I'll leave. Yes. And you're going, that's mad, right? Because an economist would have to say that's insane right. because you're paid very well for the job you've got. Yeah. Why do you care about someone else? Well, we totally care about someone else. Wow. Um, and similarly, if you get paid more, you know, that'll make you happy. So it's all, again, this relative stuff. Right. Kind uh, of similar to uh, what's the what's the cliche I've heard is that the only people that complain more than more than actors are actors that are working. It's uh, like, uh, you know, as soon as you like as soon as you have a job, you're aware of a whole bunch of injustices that 
um, that that could make your job better, that could could do it. But meanwhile, you're unaware of the, of the fact that there are people who would kill just for your position, just to be there, Absolutely. just to be there, yeah, just yeah, to be exactly. in the room. So that's one of the big problems that we have overall. Governments have is that they are they are using uh, you know. Guidelines given by economists, right, right. Uh, often uh, because what else have we got? Right, they need something they can measure, and it's very hard to measure. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to measure dollars. Where are they going? What are people spending? How much tax dollars are you getting in? They are measurements that are easy to do, but actually, it's not what fundamentally drives happiness. Right, right, right. Oh man. Okay. Well, I think maybe we should start pulling the plug because your cast is is, is, <laughs> they are. is Just filing, in time. filing into the into the theater, getting ready for your show. Thank yeah. you so much hopping on the podcast it's been a long time in the making yeah and next time i'm in town or maybe even we can get another skype session this is a I'd like to make this regular yeah really fun yeah. Great. do you, Great have, do you have any plugs or anything like that if you're like? in london uh, and it's up until march the 16th 2019 come and see showstop at the improvised musical uh, uh, otherwise we're actually in london kind of every month so if you're around in london any of jamie's listeners uh, come and see our show we uh, we love to see yeah we got some listeners in London guys thanks so much this has been an excellent episode I can't wait for more uh, uh, you can check us out on Facebook on uh, Instagram on YouTube we're all over the internet also if you like this podcast and you want to support us with uh, not a relative amount of money uh, you can uh, <laughs> you can check out our, our Patreon account and uh, and you get bonus material every week for, for, for that kind of sponsorship um, thanks again for listening. Dylan, thank you for being on the podcast. Pleasure. This has been another episode of Explain It to Jamie.